Pray with me, will you? Father, we thank you that we can come together tonight to worship Christ, the newborn King, the one who came to redeem us, the one who came to bear our sins. We rejoice in his coming. As we draw to your word now, I pray that you would uh, help us to see what you would say to us through it, and I pray that you would touch and transform our lives. Encourage us with your word as we seek to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're going to pick up in the scripture where um, the uh, Baumeister family left off with verse 6 of John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, verse 6 through verse 14. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people. Did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. This is the word of God. We have been looking at the family God gave Jesus over the course of this Advent season. We started with aunts and uncles, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, people that we can share what God is doing in our lives with. Aunts and uncles, extended family. Then we took a look at Father Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, the ideal gift giver, the one who gave everything he had to Jesus. Last week we looked at Mother Mary, so happy to give herself in service to God. We have one more installment, and that is this evening. As we look at the family that God gave Jesus, this last installment looks at the unbelieving brothers that Jesus had. God gave Jesus unbelieving brothers. In fact, God gave Jesus brothers who thought he was a nut. Why would God give his son brothers who didn't believe? What value could there possibly be in opposition like that? And you're probably thinking right now, you're going to talk about that on Christmas Eve. I am. I want to give you something to think about. And this is where we live. We all have family, and we'll be seeing some of them this Christmas. I want to give you something that can help you there, because not only will we be seeing some of them this Christmas, we will probably, some of us, be avoiding some of them this Christmas. 
We all deal with opposition, and we need to see that Jesus experienced it too when he came to identify with us. Sometimes brothers and sisters disappoint us. They can be really inconvenient. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think we will say that we don't want to admit we know them. I grew up with a handicapped brother. My brother has what's called nowadays a developmental delay. Back in the 60s, people used other terms for it, and they weren't very nice. And hearing those things sometimes made me just a little embarrassed of my brother. I have grown through the years to admire my brother greatly. He has had to deal with things I never had to deal with. But imagine you have a brother who thinks he's the son of God. That would be really embarrassing. Even for brothers of the Lord Jesus, it must have been because they just didn't believe he was who he said he was. The latest kook to claim divine sonship was living under their roof. People must have laughed when they saw them coming. Hey guys, how's the son of God? How's the Messiah these days? Embarrassing. Mark chapter 3 verse 21 relates a story about a time in Jesus' ministry when his family tried to break in on a meeting that Jesus was running. They wanted to take charge of him. They told people he's out of his mind. Which brings us to our text today in John chapter 7. Here we see what may be the consummation of a lifetime of having to put up with a brother who claims to be the Son of God. By this point, Jesus' fame is spreading, and it has become more than a laughing matter to the Jewish authorities. Jesus is now considered a threat, and people are planning how they might silence him. So take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 right now. It's on page 892 in the Bibles that are near you, if you didn't bring one of your own. Page 892, we'll look at John chapter 7. We'll start with verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So here in, in verse 1, we find Jesus had to stay away from Judea because Jews there were wanting to take his life. But then verses 3 and 4, we find his brothers telling him, go there, go to Judea. And they offer reasons that are loaded with sarcasm. And then in verse 5, the real reason comes out. They didn't believe in him. They were setting him up. Maybe... If he went and got killed in Jerusalem, it would put an end to their family embarrassment. Why would a loving Heavenly Father place his son 
in a family like that? Why would a loving Heavenly Father allow any of His children to experience hardship? It's because there are some lessons that can only be learned through suffering. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us something very interesting about Jesus. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that mean? I think it means this. You learn how far your obedience will go when you have to suffer for obeying. A lot of people will obey as long as it's convenient, but throw some difficulties in the way of obedience and watch out. Obedience becomes optional. Might the unbelieving brothers Jesus was raised with have been a part of that suffering that taught him the extent of obedience? Might his family situation allow Jesus to identify with us all the more in some of the struggles we experience. I'd like for us to look at some of the struggles of Jesus' family life and then at the lessons that taught him obedience. First, struggles. There is a progression in the treatment that Jesus received from his brothers. I believe that in that progression, Jesus identified with the suffering that we all experience. First step was unbelief, verse 5, unbelief. It's the last thing to be revealed in this section, but it's the real reason behind his brother's actions. They had already made up their minds about him, and what they decided was, this guy is not for real. I'd venture to say there are people here today who will either not be getting together with certain family members this Christmas, or who will keep their distance from uh, certain people at family gatherings for this very reason. Maybe they think you're a religious nut. Maybe they doubt the sincerity of your Christian experience. Maybe your lifestyle makes them uncomfortable because it makes them aware of their own sin. Whatever it is, some of you have been written off by family members. And because of that, family gatherings become painful events. What you need to know is that Jesus can relate. He has been there too. So unbelief is the first step. Next step is assigning motives. Verse 4, the uh, brothers say, No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Assigning motives. Once a person's mind is made up, he or she can begin to misjudge your actions and intentions It flows naturally out of the person's having written you off. It's a safety device. It's safer for that person to malign your intentions than it is for them to admit that you may be right. And it allows that person to feel okay about treating you less than fairly. Ever been on the receiving end of that one? I'm sure we all have. Just when you get done explaining one set of actions to the person, he's found another set of actions to question. It's endless. We need to see that Jesus can relate. He's been there too. Jesus' brothers had written him off as a nut. They didn't believe him to be who he said he was. As a result of what they thought about him, they misjudged his motives. They supposed he had delusions of grandeur. 
who wanted to become a public figure. They assigned motives that confirmed in their minds everything that they had already decided was true about him. And that brings us to the third step, and that is betrayal. Betrayal, verses 1 through 3. When they told him to go to the very place he was avoiding going to, knowing that people there were looking to take his life. Now, not everyone sets people up to be murdered, uh, like Jesus' brothers may have tried to do, but we experience acts of betrayal all the same. I was the last of six kids. That means there were five people ahead of me in terms of passing the blame. You know how that goes. Something gets broken and the guilty party tries to pin it on the person who can do him the least harm. All of us can relate, I think, to taking the rap for something someone else did. And some of us, though, have experienced far more serious betrayal than those things. Parents who abused us, spouses who have hurt us deeply. Part of the wonder of Christmas is that Jesus experienced betrayal at the hands of his own family members. It's not usually what we think of, is it, when we think of Christmas, but it's true, and it's why I'm talking about it tonight. We tend to think of Christmas in terms of a baby that doesn't cry, cooing softly on a bed of uh, disinfected straw, in a, a clean stable that doesn't smell, surrounded by happy animals and well-groomed shepherds. Well, the reality is that the first Christmas was none of those things. And it was, in fact, for Jesus, far more humbling and humiliating than anything we could imagine. That's Christmas. Christmas is summed up in the passage we read earlier in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own but his own did not receive him. Now, why would Jesus go through with it? He would go through with it to identify with us. That's what the incarnation is all about. God in flesh, identifying fully with us. When we experience struggles, when we are maligned and disbelieved and mistrusted and betrayed, we can turn to him because he has been there too. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus has experienced the human situation completely. And we can learn obedience through what we suffer as well. How far will your obedience go? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hear what he's saying? Look to Jesus when you are suffering. Consider him because he's been there. Now, what lessons in human experience would Jesus have picked up through having brothers who didn't believe? What lessons can we pick up from enduring opposition as he did? Well, the first lesson has to do with persistence. We learn how far our obedience will go. And we find that opposition helps us to evaluate what really matters. Look at verses 10 and 11. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. 
The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Jesus went to Jerusalem despite the setup his brothers tried to stage. He went despite the fact that there were people in Judea who wanted to take his life. He went because he knew that that was what he was supposed to do. And because he knew it was what he was supposed to do, he went regardless of potential consequences. He knew it mattered, and he persisted. Suffering reminds us of what really matters. It can clarify what's really important to us. It can help us see what's worth doing and what isn't. Once you've decided what really matters, you don't need to let challenges stand in your way. Challenges can actually help us by clarifying what's worth going to the wall for and what's not. It's part of learning obedience through what we suffer. How far are you willing to go to be obedient to God? Persistence. The second lesson has to do with trust. Opposition helps us learn to trust God. Jesus got some practical hands-on experience in how to trust the Father's timing. We see it in this section. Uh, Jesus told his brothers that his time had not yet come. Does that phrase sound familiar? Uh, We saw it in chapter 2 of John's Gospel at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where Mary said they've run out of wine. He goes, my time has not yet come. Jesus would get his directions from the Father, and the Father would make it clear when his time had come. Jesus often got away for a time of communing with the Father just to be clear on those directions. He trusted the Father, and he acted on that trust. One of the lessons God's people of all the ages have had to learn is how to trust God when God doesn't seem to be making sense. The only way to learn that lesson is through experiencing a time of suffering, struggling in your own life. It may come in the form of sickness, a financial reversal, a personal tragedy, a bad job situation, loss of friends or loved ones, even betrayal at the hands of your own family members. And when those things happen, we tend to go one of two ways. We can choose to rebel against God hold resentment toward him, even try to punish him for allowing those things to happen. Ever try to punish God? We do that by not spending time with him in prayer and in his word, in worship and in fellowship with other Christians. And the only person that really punishes is us. The other route that we can take at a time like that is to let God be God and draw nearer to his great heart. And trust him, though we don't know what he's doing. Job said it well, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. God wants us to grow in our ability to trust him. Persistence, trust, the third lesson has to do with overcoming. Opposition teaches us God's way of overcoming. And here we need to just step briefly outside the bounds of John's gospel and jump for a minute, into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul tells us about how Jesus appeared to a number of people after his resurrection. And one of the people mentioned by name that Jesus appeared to 
was Jesus' brother, James. How do you suppose that meeting went? You remember James, one of Jesus' brothers who thought he was out of his mind, who told other people he was out of his mind, who also tried to get Jesus to go to Jerusalem to get killed? I wonder what that meeting was like. The glorified, risen Son of God appears to the brother who did those things. You suppose he had harsh words for James? I don't think he needed to. One look at the risen Son of God would have told James everything he needed to know. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we find Jesus' brothers numbered among his disciples in the upper room. Just weeks after the resurrection, the event that turned everything around, they had become followers. They had become worshipers. And James starts his epistle by describing himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his brother Jude would start his epistle identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. What happened? They had experienced the risen Christ. Once Jesus' brothers saw that Jesus really was who he said he was, they could move from hardened skeptics to dynamic servants of the Lord. Paul tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's God's way of overcoming? How do we really find value in opposition and turn those situations around to the glory of God? Let me suggest some things that we can do in the face of opposition that will enable us to overcome evil with good. First, learn to forgive. Second, imagine what it would be like if that person who's opposing you would come to faith in Christ. Third, bring that person to Jesus. Here's an amazing thought. The Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he had martyred. That's how the gospel works. That's overcoming. The gospel triumphs because it alone can take the most despised person we know and turn that person into a child of God. Who do you know who you think could never become a follower of the Lamb of God any more than the brothers of Jesus were unlikely to become his followers? Pray for that person that God would touch and transform that person's life. The gospel has that kind of power. Often when we're facing opposition, we are so intent on getting out of it that we don't get anything out of it. But the Bible tells us there's value to be found in the difficult circumstances of life. Those very circumstances can have a vital part in shaping us into the people God wants us to become. The Christmas message that we celebrate isn't just about a stable with donkeys and shepherds. It's that Jesus left the glory of heaven 
and willingly endured opposition for us, ultimately paying the price on the cross for our sin. The message of Christmas is also that the way of glory for us is the same way Jesus went, endure patiently, remain faithful, trust God for outcomes. And when we do, we find we'll learn a lesson that only a faithful few learn. We learn the value of opposition. The family God gave Jesus, extended family who could receive the good news of his coming, a human father who gave all he could, a human mother who demonstrated the value of servanthood, and brothers who helped him learn obedience through what he suffered. He did all that to identify with us. He became one of us. He experienced everything we do except sin. And he went to the cross to pay for our sin. We celebrate the baby in the manger, but he's much more than that. He is the savior of the world. If you haven't put your trust in him as your savior, I would urge you to do that tonight. And then from that, have the best Christmas ever. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, it's, it's a strange passage, I suppose, to be looking at on Christmas Eve, and it's a strange idea to be thinking about, and yet we recognize that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, and we recognize as well that Jesus endured opposition as a part of his identifying fully with us. And having identified fully with us, He took our sin upon his innocent shoulders and suffered and died on the cross to forgive us, to pay the penalty in full for our sin. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this evening who has not put his or her trust in you for what Jesus did on their behalf, I pray that you'd help that person just in the quiet of this moment to say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that you took my sin when you went to the cross, that that was for me as much as for anybody. I want to put my trust in you. Thank you for paying the price in full for my sin. I ask you to forgive me on the basis of that. Live in me and let me honor you in my life and worship you forever. So, Father, we pray that this Christmas would be a special one for each of us as we recognize afresh what Jesus was willing to do for us. In his name we pray. Amen.